So we're going to spend quite a bit of time on David Hume, and it will profit you to no end to listen to this discourse, I promise you. So David Hume, a little bit of my nemesis, but also he's a great instigator. He's a great provoker of great thoughts. So I respect him enormously, and he's been a great guy to wrestle with. So let's get into his life a little bit, Uh, 1711 to 1776. Uh, He died of uh, intestinal cancer after a fairly long illness. And he was uh, born to an upper-middle-class family in Scotland, just on the far side of the Scottish border. His father died when he was very young. His mother doted upon him and read to him and reasoned with him. And when his older brother went to Edinburgh University, he was sent to Edinburgh University when he was about 11, some people say 11, some people say 12 years old, and left it at 14 or 15 years of age, as was then usual. Can you imagine that? 11, time to go to university, and you graduate at 14 or 15. Now, his family wanted him to study law, which was sort of in the family tradition on both sides, but he found it, I mean, it was more than just distasteful. The young David Hume found it repulsive, and instead of doing his law studies, he just read like crazy uh, on just about anything, and then he kind of got a little nutty. Uh, 1729, he had a nervous breakdown from the intensity and hot mind pursuit of knowledge, and he actually took a few years to recover from that. 1734, he tried his hand working in a merchant's office in Bristol, but instead decided to retire to France for three years of studying and writing. Uh, He wrote A Treatise of Human Nature, and this was his first, though not his last, attempt to formulate a top-to-bottom, back-to-front, full-fledged philosophical system. Now, it's his most thorough work, but, but he really disavowed it later on in his life. Towards the end of his life, he said, it's juvenile, it's ridiculous, it's confusing. He, he strongly repudiated this work. And, yeah, I mean, it's not the best constructed book in the known universe, I guess you can say. And when you use terms like reason and knowledge and so on without a clear definition, those definitions can shift uh, in in your very hands. Uh, You you think you're handling something solid, but you're actually handling soft clay, or sometimes it feels like water and it just changes throughout uh, throughout the whole book. So book one of his treatise on human nature is still the most read, particularly among academic philosophers, than anything else that he wrote. So he published books one and two of his treatise in 1739. Uh, He he took about two years for him to get published. Book three appeared the following year. And it tossed out of the gate, fell out of the gate like a lead balloon. And so he said in his autobiography, he wrote a rather... I don't know, like emotionally distant autobiography many years later, he wrote that, quote, his his first philosophical work, quote, it fell dead-born from the press without reaching such distinction even as to excite a murmur among the zealots. So, but he kept going. He kept going. He actually decided to rewrite it and re-release it and said it was released too quickly. He needed to work on it some more. I get all of that. I mean, I, I wrote UPB 14 or 15 years ago, and then I wrote a more concise and uh, uh, efficient version of it for Essential Philosophy. You can get that for free at EssentialPhilosophy.com. So then he wrote another work called Essays, Moral and Political. And this is 1741 to 42. Got some success in this, and this elevated him to be a candidate for the Chair of Moral Philosophy at Edinburgh in 1744. However, however... They said, oh, he's a heretic. In fact, he might even be an atheist. And he, the, we'll go into his treatise, but they pointed at the treatise and said, that's the evidence. So they blocked his appointment. So then he left Edinburgh. He'd been living there since 1740 and began to wander around. What they called it? Tarry at the time. So he went to St. Albans as a tutor to the Marquis of Annandale, 
from 1945 to 1946, but uh, it turns out that she was actually insane and couldn't be, couldn't be taught that much. And he did a little bit of military action, and he roamed around. I sort of won't get into all of the details, but he, he roamed around, he worked. He ended up being in charge of a giant library and ended up writing massive volumes of British history. He'd always had a taste for writing history, and uh, some of it's really, really good, and was, of course, in print for many, many years and decades, in fact, and was uh, quite, quite popular. And he, he was considered to be a fantastic writer, like a great writer. He mixed uh, the personal with the anecdotal, with the factual, all in a very stylish prose. And in, in a sense, it's the challenge of Plato versus Aristotle. We don't know what Aristotle wrote because we only have student notes and other things from what Aristotle had, but Plato is such a delicate and powerful writer that he has, you know, a lot. The storyteller runs the world in many ways, and Plato was a great, a great storyteller. Okay, so let's get into what he was all about. So one of the first things that he talked about was there's true and there's false, and then there's, I think this is the Latin phrase, huh? <laughs> true, false, and huh? What does that mean? What does that mean? This is an important question, right? So if you're going to entertain a hypothesis, the hypothesis has to be comprehensible. I, I wrote about this many years ago in my novel Just Poor, where people say, God and soul... But when you start to examine what people mean by something like God and something like soul, it becomes kind of incomprehensible. A God, in many ways, is a negative concept. We're mortal. God is the opposite of mortal. We are limited in our knowledge. God is not limited in his knowledge. We strive for virtue. God is virtue. Uh, that, a virtue is that which has to be chosen. God can never choose immorality, but God is ultimately virtuous. Uh, everything that exists has to be created. God creates at will. And so when you look at the concept of God, it's not so much an affirmation as it is a negation of every characteristic or aspect of life that we know. In the same way, if you look at something like the soul, well, uh, we need the operations of a brain to have a personality, to have an identity. But no, 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 the soul is our personality and identity Without the brain. Oh, okay, well, all life is material. No, 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 the soul is immaterial. All life is mortal. No, 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 the soul is immortal. And so on. So uh, we, we can't leave our own bodies. That would be a contradiction in terms. The brain can't get out into the universe. But the soul can leave the body. Um, so is it a positive concept or is it a negative concept? Now, you can prove positive assertions, but can you prove negative assertions? Uh, in, in the same way that if I say I have an invisible spider on my head, and then you say, oh, well, I'll check it out by touching it. No, 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 you can't touch it. Okay, well, can I point infrared at it and get the heat signature? Nope, you can't do that either. Okay, can I smell it? No. Can I feed it something and listen to it chew? No. Right, so the invisible spider is a negative concept. You take every aspect of non-existence and then claim that it equals existence, right? So if you can't detect by any means possible a spider on top of my head, then there's no spider on top of my head. But if I say the spider is there, there meaning it has a presence, and then I say it has every characteristic of being absence, then I'm saying absence equals presence, and presence equals absence. A spider is there despite having every single characteristic of nothing being there, right? So that, that's kind of incomprehensible. We can say the spider isn't there, and if I then just assert it, like if I say there's a supernatural being that has as its characteristics the opposite of everything that we know of as life, or I have a soul that has the characteristics that are the exact opposite of everything we know of as life, but it's still life, then do we have a comprehensible argument, right? So one of the reasons why Hume got accused of heresy and uh, atheism is he said, okay, let's look at this concept or the idea of the soul. Now, he was an empiricist, which he said that all ideas in the mind come in through the evidence of the senses, right? So, 
Everything, of course, that we see and remember comes through the evidence of the senses. If you think about a hot date you had 10 years ago, then you had that hot date. But it's funny, things can rewrite. Uh, I, I watched the show Psych many, many years ago. It's a fun, it's a fun show. It's a funny show. And in it, Sean, uh, the lead character, is a bit of an ADHD <laughs> princess. And he's told the year and he says, no, no, that can't be right because this would, we'd already be at war with the robots. And I remember that line from many, many years ago. And then I watched that episode again not too long ago. I remember the line and I got the line accurately, but I thought he was saying it in a completely different room. Like that had been, uh, I was really surprised. I thought, why did he use this line twice? But so we've got these senses that gives us, gives us a window on external reality, right? And every concept, Hume's argument is not just for sense data, but for concepts. He says every concept within our minds is ultimately derived from experience. So he, he's got these two terms, impressions, and that's like straight up sense data, and ideas, which are watered down copies of our impressions in the way that in the show Psych, when the character said, no, 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 can't be this year. We'd already be at war with robots. I remembered that, but my memory was an incomplete copy of it or an inaccurate copy of it, or certainly less than accurate. I remember the line, though not the exact line. I remember the idea behind the line. I remembered he was sitting in a room, but he was sitting in a completely different room when I saw it than what I remembered. And we always have this, right? We have this uh, a lot of times, you know, if you go back to a house you grew up in, it seems to have different dimensions than when you were a kid and, and so on, right? So uh, memory is, is an imperfect copy. It's like taking a, a photograph and putting it on a black and white photocopier. It's just a watered down uh, version. And so concepts are copied from sense data according to Hume, right? So you're looking at a tomato, and it's vivid red with that green stalky thing. It's vivid red, right? But when you think of it later, it's less vivid. It's less, I mean, you're just thinking of it in your mind. It's less vivid. Now, of course, the, the argument, and I remember reading about this in a book I read, I think in my early teens, uh, Invasion of the Body Snatchers, the one that was later made into the movie about communism with Donald Sutherland. And in it, the argument was, well, we can't ever really invent anything. And we can't, we can't, there's nothing in the mind that has never been through the senses. And so he says, look, of course we can think of unicorns and we can think of dragons and uh, we can think of things, we can think of things of, like souls and so on. So he said, look, there, there's two sorts of ideas. There are simple ideas that come directly from sense data. And then there are complex ideas which are concepts. Uh, we have uh, the concept of a mammal, we have the concept of a forest and so on, and these are complex ideas. In the same way that there are bricks that you use to build a house, and then there's a home that you have an emotional attachment to. Uh, the bricks are required for there to be a home. The home is a complex idea, the bricks are more of the simple ideas, because you can actually touch, you can touch the bricks, you can't touch the concept of a home, right? Now, you can imagine things that you have not directly experienced by assembling simple ideas into complex ideas, and the complex ideas may not exist in the world. We can think of a pink polka-dotted horse. Well, we have the idea of pink polka dots uh, from itsy-bitsy yellow polka-dot bikini, itsy-bitsy teeny-weeny yellow polka-dot bikini that she wore for the first time. So we've seen polka dots, we've seen horses, so we take these two simple ideas and we combine them into a complex idea, which is a pink polka-dotted horse. But the pink polka-dotted horse does not exist in reality. So, and Hume says, yeah, I get that, but all you're doing is jamming two things together. You've seen a horn, right? And you've seen a horse. And you've seen a white horse. Or even if you've never seen a white horse, you've seen the color white, you've seen a horse, you've seen a horn. These are three simple ideas. You can combine them together to get a white flowing maned unicorn with a horn on its head, right? So it's nothing that is new. And also he says, look, you can't explain red to a colorblind person. There was a movie that came out in 85 with Sam Elliott and Cher called Mask. And it was a guy with a facial deformity and a biker gang mom. And 
in it, there was a scene where one character was trying to explain to another character who lacked the sense what uh, textures and colors were. And you can't. Uh, you really, you can't do it. You can't do it. You cannot explain to somebody who's blind what red is. You could say, oh, it's, an, it's a fiery color, but they don't really know what fire is other than heat. Uh, you could say it's an angry color, but they don't necessarily associate. Like, we, we think that uh, red is an angry color in part because of bulls, I suppose, but also because people who are really angry tend to have uh, redder uh, faces, right? So we think of, of uh, that. And of course, we think of an angry sunburn and, and pain uh, and blood. Uh, p- blood would result from maybe a beating, which would be angry. So we associate red with anger because of our uh, general metaphorical experiences. So the proof for what Hume is saying is that, or at least a reasonable support mechanism, is to say, look, if you don't if you can't see color, you cannot understand color. You don't have the concept of color without it, right? So uh, this is called the copy principle, that our minds are degraded copies, like the contents of our mind, uh, our concepts, our ideas, our categorized, uh, our complex ideas, are watered-down copies of our sense data. Uh, and and so if if we've never had the impression of something, if we've never seen something, to take just a visual sense, if we've never seen something, we have no concept of it. We have no concept of it. And we have a concept of a dragon because we've seen pictures of dragons and, and so on, right? I mean, we obviously have the concept of fire and, you know, the, the fact that dragons breathe fire, well, what do we do? We blow onto fire to make it get bigger, right? Because added oxygen causes the fire to burn hotter. So the idea that, you know, we've seen lizards, we've seen large lizards. Of course, dragons, I assume, were derived in part from the existence of dinosaur bones, right? So we have, uh, we blow on a fire, the fire gets bigger, a dragon blows, and out comes fire. So we kind of get all of that, right? So we've seen lizards, we've seen large lizards, we've seen the bones of very large lizards, and we've seen things with wings, and so we put all these things together, we get a dragon, and so on, right? But nobody's ever seen an objective dragon because they don't exist. We have ideas of dragons. We've seen pictures of dragons. If you go to Dungeons & Dragons Monster Manual, you'll see a whole bunch of different dragons. Uh, Tiamat, uh, red, gold, green, blue dragons, uh, and so on, right? There's even a zombie dragon somewhere as well, right? So a zombie, right? Even a zombie, right? We've, we've got someone who's, um, who's dead, and we can imagine the dead walking, right? We can imagine the dead getting out of bed and walking around while still being dead. But we've got the concept of death, and we've got the concept of walking around, and we simply jam these two things together. And, I mean, we're being creative, but we're not being original. We cannot have thoughts in our mind that have never come in through the senses in any way, shape, or form. So then he says, okay, if there's nothing that exists in our mind that we've never seen or experienced through any of the senses, what does it mean to have a soul? What does that mean? Well, we can't see souls. We can't hear them. We can't detect them with infrared. There's the 21 grams thing I assume is total nonsense. So where, what does the concept of soul mean if we've never seen it? Well, what about, oh, introspection. Well, I can introspect. It's like, no, no, when I introspect, when I think about myself and the operations of my thoughts, what am I thinking about? Well, I'm thinking about my ideas, my memories, my thoughts, my, my impressions, my tangents and all of that, my, my concerns, my joys, my whatever, right? But there's, there's no soul in there. There's no soul. So if we don't ever experience a soul, we never get it through the senses, we never get it through introspection, then it's an empty concept. It doesn't exist. It's an incomprehensible concept. Because for Hume, there's no ideas without experience, and since we never experience a soul, we have no actual idea of a soul. It's a... uh, He wouldn't say it's a negative concept, but that's what I would sort of... It's a negation. It's the negation of a concept. So, let's talk about bundle theory. So, if we don't have a soul... What is our identity? What is our self? Well, 
He says that when you look at yourself in, in the mirror or you look at yourself in, in glass or I guess the surface of a lake and you think about yourself and other people interact with you, you interact with them and you have dreams and you write books and you think about things and so on, then you are a bundle of experiences and sensations and thoughts. That you are this bundle. Now, we have a bundle of sticks. And the bundle of sticks is a bundle of sticks. Now, we might have a label of that. It's now a rude word, but we may have a label for that. But we only have a bundle of sticks. That's all that actually exists. Everything else we put on there, it's an idea, it's a concept, but it doesn't exist in reality in the same way that each individual stick tied together does. Right? So there's a bunch of individuals in a square, like a, a town square. A bunch of individuals, it's a crowd or a group or something like that. Each individual exists but there's nothing that exists magically over and above each individual. So we can't justly say that there's an immaterial substance that exists in addition to the endless flow of our thoughts, senses, and experiences. Right? Our identity is that. Our thoughts, our emotions, our experiences, our dreams, that's what the self is. There's nothing in addition to that. There's nothing in addition to that. So you're not you plus a ghost. You're not you plus a soul. You're not you plus an immaterial essence that can never be experienced or proven. It's called the bundle theory. You're a bundle of things and there's nothing, nothing extra. Now, things get fairly trippy from here. Uh, I'll be... Uh, <laughs> I'll be I'll be straight up. So, what about causation? The typical example is if you've ever played pool or bocce ball or whatever, right? The goal is you hit the white ball and then you get the solids or the stripes to go into the the holes, the corner pocket, the side pocket and so on, right? So, let's look at causality. So, he says, look, let's say you get a red ball to hit a blue ball, right, in, in billiards or pool. You get a red ball to hit a blue ball. And then the blue ball, you get that satisfying little sound, and then the blue ball goes in some other direction, right? Now, we can say the blue ball, the red ball hits the blue ball and the blue ball moves. But Hume would say, you cannot prove causality. You can see one event following another. But there's nothing called causality that is occurring in the senses. Causality is an idea in the mind. And that's, that's pretty wild, right? Now, you see a bunch of billiard balls. Um, the red hits the blue. The blue goes off in some other direction. But you can't know for certain, just because you experience it, that the second ball moved because the first ball hit it. I mean, it could be that you are uh, washing your hair and the phone rings. But the phone didn't ring because you're washing your hair, we assume, right? You might go to a movie and get a hiccup, but you don't get hiccups because... Right, So the fact that one thing follows another does not mean that there's causality. So to get the causal connection, he says, you've got to observe a whole bunch of pairs of these events. So, of course, as you see, you play billiards or whatever as a kid, or even dogs can do this, object constancy, and, and you start to get cause and effect. So you can develop a sense of causality from repetition of seeing these balls hit each other, but you can't look at the first time you see it, you can't say that causes the other, according to Hume. You don't, direct, you don't directly observe any causal connection. You grow it empirically over time, a sense of this causality, but it's not embedded 
in the act itself. I know this sounds kind of esoteric and, and perhaps a little weird and also perhaps a little useless. I get all of that. But be patient because it has a lot to do with reality and in particular morality as a whole. So just as he says your identity is just your thoughts, sensations, and experiences all bundled together and there's nothing extra, he would say that one billiard ball will make the other move. And, and we can observe to say, well, when one billiard ball hits another, the other one moves. We can say that. But there's no cause. There's merely the observation of the effect. So there's nothing in the world that makes everything work this way, right? There's nothing that makes the second ball move when it's hit by the first. As a matter of fact, it always does. But there's nothing that makes it that way. Now, as to why this is important, look, we now have, by the time that David Hume was born, we now have close to 200 years of the modern Baconian scientific method. And this scientific method had achieved staggering progress by removing the causality of God. By removing the causality of God, that God designed the billiard balls to do this way, that God made a a home for the moral instruction of mankind, that the earth is at the center of the universe. It's an ethics play designed by God so human beings can be good and get to heaven. And so the way that the scientific method works is it says, we grimly observe and we don't guess causes. Right? Why does one billiard ball hit the other and make it move? Well, of course, a theologian would probably say, well, because God has designed it that way to be the best of all possible universes and so on. This is something that Voltaire marked quite a bit with Dr. Pangloss in Candide, the best of all possible universes. So the perp- why? Because God made it do that, because God designed it that way for the betterment of mankind, for the moral instruction of mankind, for us to have a great place to live, and so on, right? It's the difference between the sea and an aquarium, right? So back in the day, when Finding Nemo came out, everyone bought these clownfish and, and the, the dory fish and so on, and most of them died because it's kind of tough to keep those saltwater fish in the right environment that, that works out well, right? So in the ocean, the ocean is not designed for fish to flourish, but rather fish have adapted to the capacities and, and nature of the ocean to flourish, right? But the ocean's not designed for that. On the other hand, an aquarium or a terrarium or whatever you've got while you're keeping your pets, an aquarium is designed for fish to flourish, right? It's got the aerator, uh, you, you put the food in, you keep the temperature uh, at the right, and you clean it out, and, and so on, right? So a, and I remember when, when I was a kid going fishing, I brought this giant sucker fish home, put it in an aquarium, and it died, of course, right? Because it's designed for rivers, not an aquarium. And ugh, that was a gross thing, because it took me weeks to finally end up throwing it out, and by that time it was completely, basically dissolved, it was really disgusting. Right, so an aquarium, what's the purpose of the aerator? Well, the purpose of the aerator is to keep the oxygen in the water so the fish can survive, right? What's the purpose of temperature control? What's the purpose of cleaning? Why do you have the snails in there to clean the sides so we can see it? What's the purpose of the glass so you can watch the fish? Because if you can't watch the fish, uh, you can't, there's not much point having them and so on, right? So an aquarium is designed to support the flourishing of the fish. The ocean is not. So we design the aquarium to support the life of the fish. But in the ocean, the fish has adapted its own, through evolution, it's adapted its own capacities to exploit the environment to further its own life. Now, science, I know this all sounds crazy, right? But yeah, be with me. Science says the world is not an aquarium. The world is not designed for us. It is our job to understand the nature of the universe, to observe it, and to see that, yes, one billiard ball hits another, off it moves, right? But the cause of all of this is not God's will. It's not for the betterment of mankind. It's not for the moral instruction of children. It's not to make you 
more likely to get to heaven. Nothing. It's just what is. And so when he's saying there's no causality to the universe, this is why he's accused of heresy and atheism. Because he's saying, no, it's not an aquarium. It's just the ocean. And why is he saying this? Oh, it's nuts, man. It's nuts how how all of this worked out. It really is crazy. And it helps me put what I'm doing in perspective, and hopefully that helps with you too. So why, why, why is he saying this? Because science has progressed by viewing the world as an ocean, not an aquarium, right? Because you're learning about nature, not about God's purpose. Nature as something to be observed, but without any conscious causality in what happens. I mean, there was, in the Middle Ages, I think it was, there was a nunnery that burned down with all the nuns inside, right? Now, if you are aquarium guy rather than ocean guy, then you look at that and say, why did God cause or allow the nuns to be burned alive in such a horrifying manner, right? Why? Why, I mean, I just did the truth about pirates yesterday. Why did people believe that if you got ill, it's because you were sinful. Well, I mean, look, there was some truth in that, right? I mean, if, if, if you got gout, it may be because you overate. If you got a venereal disease, it's because you probably slept around or prayed a prostitute or, or something like that, right? And so moral self-restraint and better health, or at least physical self-restraint in terms don't eat too much, don't, like if you got... Uh, some sort of, uh, I mean, if, if if you got some sort of horrible lung cancer, it's because you foolishly smoked uh, often, right? If you, uh, if your liver died, it had a lot to do with you drinking too much alcohol or whatever, right? So, but, you know, a lot of stuff was just, you know, whoops, bad luck, right? Whoops, bad luck. But when nuns got burned alive in their nunnery, well, Hume, I assume Hume would say, well, there was a fire, the nuns were trapped, and they burned to death. That's a description of the facts. The aquarium folk, the theologians, would likely say, it's a message about the sinfulness of X, Y, and Z, or there must have been corruption in the nunnery, and God was punishing them, and so on, right? And he's like, no, you can't get cause out of these things, you can merely talk sequence. A fire started, the nuns were trapped inside, they burned to death. That's all we know. Anything, and that's the bundle, so to speak, right? Right? That's the bundle. We are not us plus the soul. And the sequence of a fire started, the nuns were trapped, they burned to death, is not this all happened because they sinned, because uh, people weren't going to church enough, because somebody did an immoral dance, because they took money from a bad donor, because, right? No. What can we see? So I get, you know, it's like, well, where's the causality? You can't see the causality. But what he's trying to do is he's trying, I think, he's trying to break the medieval theological mindset of, and look, this is still around. <laughs> this is still around. You know, I saw this bitter meme. It's a little soul-destroying, I guess almost literally. And the meme was, if terrible things are happening in your life, what you need to do is gaslight yourself. And someone's saying, well, everything's happening for a reason. And it's like, so this is, everything's hap- everything happens for a reason is looking at causality. And he's saying, no, 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 don't do that. It's not valid. We are not ourselves and things happening plus Invisible finger, chess move, causality, right? Now, I mean, Hume says, of course, look, we have to live in the world and we accept and we, we process this causality. It happens automatically. But let's remember, let's remember that things are happening. We can talk about a sequence. Red ball hits blue ball, blue ball moves. Nuns get trapped in fire, nuns burn to death. We can talk about that as a sequence. But causality, 
no, 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 no. We can't do causality because causality leads to theology, and theology denies science. Because the illusion of an answer is the end of inquisition. It's the end of curiosity. Right? I mean, if you you, you, dr- you drive to get home, you get home, you stop driving. because you right. So if you have an answer that is imaginary called causality, then you stop looking for the real answers. And look, science had just blown everyone's mind. There's been almost no bigger change, at least until we get to Darwin, right? There's been almost no bigger change in the human mind than the unseating of the theological imperatives and causality of why the universe is and what the universe is for. Why is the universe? God created it as a moral stage for mankind to play out the goal of reaching heaven. All right? Why do things happen? To instruct us, to punish us, to remind us, right? Everything is a moral lesson. Everything is a moral lesson. And again, this is all over the place these days. Right? Things happen for a reason. God doesn't give you more tests than you can handle. Right? God will give you his greatest battles, but you'll still get to heaven. Or you'll get to heaven that way. And things also happen in, in non-theological contexts as well. Right? What is the cause of profit? Exploitation. That's your moral answer. Right? Why is one person richer than another? Theft. Right? And so we, we, we see this all the time where people take A tends to lead to B, therefore, moral answer. Therefore, I know the cause. I know the cause. And he's saying, no, we don't directly observe cause. Cause is something in our mind. And yeah, we got to live, we got to accept these causes, but let's not pretend that they exist and come in through our senses or they're objective. So this is why he says objects of awareness, right? They're either impressions, right, some sense data, or of internal consciousness or ideas which come from sense data. You can compound the sense data, you can transpose stuff, you can diminish it, you can augment it, you can manipulate it, right? Like you can think of a, a really tiny horse that can fit in your pocket. You can think of a giant horse that is bigger than a mountain, right? But you're just taking the idea of horse and augmenting it or diminishing it and so on, right? You can, uh, you can think of a horse that's, uh, that's uh, um, made of bricks, right? Or I guess a Trojan horse made of woods with soldiers inside and so on. Again, these are all just taking soldiers and bricks and horses and jamming them all together. And so that's... Very, very important to understand this, right? So, this doctrine about causality, so he says, look, causality is a, and this is his two words, necessary connection. Necessary connection among matters of fact. So, he says, where is this necessary connection? And remember, the entire worldview of mankind going back as long as anybody could remember, the entire worldview of mankind, that the world is a flat moral stage at the center of the universe created by God that everything revolves around, designed for the moral instruction of mankind, that had been blown out of the water. I mean, the, the, the fact that the world was a sphere was known to the ancient Egyptians and the ancient Greeks and so on, but it was not so well considered in many cases by um, the, the, the Dark Ages, the early Middle Ages and so on. And so the fact that the Earth was a sphere that just went around the sun blew everyone's mind. I mean, I don't know about you. I remember having my mind blown when I was really into astronomy when I was a kid, and I read a huge amount about astronomy and and so on, and I just remember being blown, my mind being blown. I remember looking at a picture of a planet in an astronomy book and like, why don't people fall off the bottom? Like, it just blows my mind. It just blows my mind because, of course, I was still limited in my sense data, and every ball that I'd ever seen uh, footballs and, and, and what were called rounders balls and tennis balls and so on, ping pong balls, they were all subject to gravity and they all fell. So the idea that you had something hanging in a void that was not subject to gravity, but instead subjected everything on its surface to gravity, it just, you know, it blew my mind when you start to get this kind of stuff. It just, it blows your mind. Uh, 
And so the only reason that human beings discovered the true nature of the solar system is because they questioned whether there was any purpose to the world. Now, of course, if the purpose of the world is the moral instruction of mankind, then God has placed uh, the, the, the world at the center and so on, right? Also, the fact that the new world had been discovered uh, was also pretty important as well. And just a minor thing where people are seeing ships go over the horizon and then the hulls go and then the lower masts and then the upper masts so they can see that it's going down a slope, right? So a necessary connection amongst nat- matters of fact. It's not needed. It's not required. It's not causal in the way that we would understand it, right? Like I'm causing the creation of this podcast, right? I'm necessary for this podcast to exist, and it's the result of my will. But that's not the same with a tree branch falling and killing a deer, right? The tree's not trying to do anything. The deer's not being punished for its sins. It's just something that happens. Tree branch falls, hits the deer, deer dies. There's no necessary connection in the same way that there is with human activity. So what he's trying to do is he's saying, look, we choose, we act, we are the cause of things, but that's not the universe. He's saying there's a, you know, earlier there was a huge projection of human characteristics of consciousness and purpose and so on onto the universe. Human beings could not distinguish between themselves and the universe, a pretty primitive state of mind. It's called projection, right? I'm alive, therefore the universe is alive. I have purpose, therefore the universe has purpose. I want to be good, therefore the universe wants me to be good. I have a conscience, therefore the universe judges me. I judge others, others judge me, therefore the universe judges us both. It's taking human characteristics, projecting them onto nature. And he's saying, no, you can't do that. There's no necessary connection. Now, of course, he says, yeah, look, we get these habitual associations set up in the mind. We don't keep testing whether fire is hot and burns us. So, yeah, we we get it. We get it. It feels almost like a compulsion because it becomes so strong. And that's our idea of causality, but causality does not exist in the universe. I hope I'm explaining this relatively well because it sounds like one of these eye-rolling, boring things, right? I mean, horoscopes, astrology, the secret... Uh, things happen for a reason, uh, the best of all possible worlds, I'm living my best life. You don't know that. <laughs> you don't know that. Um, so this is still a, a plague in the world as a whole, class consciousness, uh, false consciousness. Uh, and of course, the idea that we can overcome the moral law by causality, right? We can overcome property rights through causality. If you look at something like socialism or communism, They say, well, the capitalist has stolen from the workers, therefore the workers should rise up and steal it back. So the fact that you, the the cause, you said the causality of the capitalist's wealth is exploitation, therefore we're in a state of nature and we should rob it back and we should, you know, maybe put the capitalist to death for being such a horrible exploiter and so on, right? So these things have like, these ideas of causality, right? Oh, every, every group, different outcome in a free market is a result of sexism and bigotry and prejudice. So we've, it's a causality argument. And once you have a causality argument, you stop looking for other things. And in fact, once you have the causality argument, alternate explanations are a threat to your worldview, to your power center, to your moral justification, usually for violence. We have governments to protect us from chaos, and nature red in tooth and claw, and a life that is nasty, brutish, and short. That's a bit of causality argument. We obey this, that, and the other because of a social contract, and it's better for it. Like, there's a whole causality argument. Now, I get that Hume, when he's looking at billiard balls, not the very best way to explain it, but of course, he was living in a time of significant censorship. But you look at this, everything you argue about with regards to morals is a causality argument. Well, we should privatize healthcare. Well, then people would die on the streets, right? The welfare state is impractical and immoral. Well, then nobody would have any food and people would starve in the streets and they'd riot and there would so causality argument, right? We have socialized medicine so that people get healthcare. If there's no socialized medicine, people won't get healthcare. Therefore, you must hate them and want them to be sick. All causality. 
we need government education to, uh, because without government education, people won't get educated, right? It's a causality argument. So, questioning causality, I get with the billiard balls, is kind of a bit odd. But questioning causality is really essential when it comes to looking at the world. So again, he says, yes, there's causality. We all have to accept it. We take it as a given. It, we need it in order to survive. Like if I'm hungry, the, that's, that causes me to eat. Yeah, if you get rid of all that causality, you don't eat and you die. So he says, yeah, we do it all the time. It's necessary for our survival. But what he says is that our assumption of causality it does not come from sense data, and it can't be demonstrated by empirical observation or any kind of reason, whether intuitive reason, inferential reason, can't prove it. It's empirical. We accumulate experience, and because we need experience, it's not proven, right? And this is the empirical challenge, right? Because we need experience, it's not proven. So, for instance, if you give a mathematician a sum that he's never done before, he doesn't need to go and experience it. He can just work it out. Right? If, if you say to someone, all men are mortal, Socrates is a man, therefore Socrates is immortal, he doesn't need to see, well, I'm going to need to see Socrates die. Like, he doesn't need that. That's proven. But that which you have to build up on experience is not logically proven in the same way that mathematics and syllogisms are. Right? If you say to a kid learning his times table, like 1 times 1 to 12 times 12, and he, he's got the mathematical process as a whole. Like, all he's done is learn the timetable, times table with no mathematical understanding. He's just memorized words, right? And then you say to him, well, what's 15 times 15. Well, it only goes up to 12 times 12, 144, right? So you say to him, what's 15 times 15? There's no clue. Whereas if, you, if you've given him the actual mathematical operations and how to do multiplication and so on, you say, what's 15 times 15? Then he can uh, come up with the answer, right? He can extrapolate from 12 times 12 is 144 to uh, 15 uh, times uh, times 15, right? He can get that. He can say, well, that's 225. So, or 50 times 50 is 2,500. Or Like, the ma he doesn't need, need to experience those things. Whereas everything that we get that's cause and effect in the material world through the evidence of our senses is not logically proven in the same way that syllogisms and mathematics are. It's not true in that same way perfect crystalline kind of way. I mean, I mean, another example is, well, uh, everything falls down. That's what kids think. And then you see a helium balloon that stays up and you're like, whoa, feels like magic, right? Everything falls down is our empirical observation. We assume that it's true. And then we see things that don't fall down and in fact fall up. Everything falls down. What about clouds? Whoa, you just blew my mind, right? So yeah, it's really, I think hopefully this makes sense about why this is so Important. So then he gets to morality. He's got an inquiry concerning principles of morals. So he says sympathy is just a fact of human nature, and it's really at the core of personal happiness, of social life as a whole. And so he says, look, morality is what we approve of and disapprove of, of course, in usually very strong ways, right? I mean, if we find somebody morally heroic, we'll build them statues. If we find somebody morally contemptible, we might hang them until they're dead, right? For the murderer or something, right? So he says, look, the qualities that are approved in everyone by virtually everybody, that's got to be morals, right? So everybody admires moral courage and in everyone, right? There's no, you don't say moral courage in this guy is good, but in that guy is really bad, right? It's a universal and just about everybody admires these things, right? And of course, we see this in superhero movies, right? Or in every movie where you have a hero, right? The hero doesn't back down, he stands tall, he can't be he doesn't give up names and cry when he's tortured. You know, he's got he's willing to sacrifice. And these are I mean, the reason why we have these consistent 
positive qualities in all of the moral heroes that you see in movies, well, that's because Hume would say, well, that's because we all understand what morality is in this sense, right? So then he says, look, things we admire and things we hate, well, admiration and hatred is a feeling. It's not a knowing, it's a feeling. So moral decisions are grounded in moral feelings, or he would refer to them as moral sentiments, right? So what do we admire about people? Well, we admire things about people or we think positively about people because of either utility or agreeableness, like it's helpful to us or it's helpful in general as a whole. And he, so this is really the basis of utilitarianism because he said like happiness is, is the goal, but he didn't formulate it in utilitarian Bentham style, the greatest happiness of the greatest number or anything like that. But he said feelings are the basis of morality which is why he says uh, sympathy is, is a fact of human nature. So he says it's human nature to, like, when people are laughing, you're going to join in their laughing. When people are crying, you're going to feel uh, sad. And you will try to seek the good of those around you and yourself. And we aim towards happiness, and part of our happiness includes the happiness of others. And this is just general a sentiment that everyone has, and that's really the essence of morality. And this, of course, is another form of projection, because he had grown up around around some pretty nice people, some pretty thoughtful people, some reasonable people, some people very concerned with ethics and morality and the good and all of that. He's like, well, you know, everyone I know has these moral sentiments, and therefore these moral sentiments are common to all human beings, and therefore that's the essence of morality. And it's like, nope. Oh, come on, it's as ridiculous as saying, well, I grew up uh, with this particular Cockney accent, everyone I know speaks this Cockney accent, therefore Cockney accent, this Cockney accent, or our Cockney accent is the essence of human language. It's like, no, nope, it's just what you speak locally. Anybody who tries to reason about morality, who has not been directly exposed to downright evil, is like a doctor who's never seen a sick person. They're not a good doctor. Like, I'm sorry, I hate to be so blunt. But Hume was surrounded by very nice people, very positive people. He was very welcome. He was a very convivial guy, and he never got married, but he was apparently enjoyed the affections of, of women quite, quite well. He got a little heavy. He enjoyed his food, his drink, and uh, he was pretty contented. Even you know, people were concerned about his state of mind as he had a, he'd fought this long intestinal cancer illness later in his life, in his 60s, and people thought, well, you know, he's going to have a terrible time because he's an atheist. So he had a positive disposition. He was a quite good-natured. He was uh, apparently quite funny and a great conversationalist, always welcome in intellectual salons and so on. So he moved among some really nice people. And I really, I don't have, uh, unless you can really talk about evil, unless you've really had your face rubbed in evil, unless you've been just around some genuinely evil people, I really don't care what you have to say about morality. Like, don't talk to me about weightlifting if you never lift any weights. Don't talk to me about health if you've never met a sick person or been sick yourself. I know this is... I understand that I don't know all of the facts nobody can about Hume's life. But this idea that, well, you know, uh, everybody respects particular moral qualities, uh, everybody admires them, everybody likes them, everybody judges them positively, it's like, God, no. I mean, and he even knew this because he would assume that his philosophical inquiries were positive and yet he was judged very negatively when he went to become a professor in, at the Edinburgh University uh, and he, was in, in, he had to edit his books considerably to take out some of the more skeptical or heretical or atheist commentary and so on. So he was under all of this censorship and he's like, well, but, but you know, intellectual curiosity and honesty is admired by everyone. It's like, well, why do you need to censor your own books then? Also, the fact that his father died early. His father seemed like a nice guy. His mother doted on him, was a very positive role model to him. Um, so, of course, I think genuine moralists. I know this is self-serving and all of that, but I'm trying to sort of understand why I have these perspectives, and I think there's good reasons for it. But, of course, I think a lot of moralists, if they're going to experience the kind of evil that is going to inform them about virtue, Right. Is virtue there for the pursuit of happiness or is virtue there for the combating of evil? Well, virtue is there primarily for the combating of evil. Right. So if you are pre-diabetic and severely overweight and you hire a health coach, right, is your health coach there 
to get you a runner's high. Nope. Your health coach is there to stop you from dying from being overweight and unhealthy or to stop you from becoming diabetic. Right? So it's, it's about fighting immorality. Virtue in the current context, and I would assume in his day as well, virtue is about fighting immorality. And later, and this is why my novel The Future takes place centuries in the future, it's about the promotion of virtue. But we're trying to avoid disaster rather than promote virtue as yet. Right? We're trying to fight evil, I think, rather than promote virtue as much. Now, of course, fighting evil has to do with the promotion of virtue, which is why I promote the peaceful parenting, the things that we can act on in our own lives, and our own relationships. But the idea that, well, everyone around me is nice, therefore niceness is the essence of human nature, I mean, that uh, doesn't make any sense to me, even in the world that he experienced. But again, if he'd grown up in a very positive and loving household, that would be quite different. I mean, if I'd stayed with the aunt who loved me rather than being returned to the mother who hated me, I probably wouldn't have ended up as a moral philosopher and certainly not a good one. And just by the by, he, Hume did have a real fracas with Jean-Jacques Rousseau. Right? This is the philosopher who wrote in France but was born in, in Switzerland. And he returned to London, Hume returned to London at the beginning of 1766, and he brought Rousseau with him to help him stay safe from persecution and so on. He went to a country house in Wooten, but, I mean, Rousseau will get to him, bit of a tormented genius, and uh, suspected a plot, and then left in the middle of the night to go back to France, and then talked trash about Hume, and Hume was going to betray him and all of this, and uh, Hume actually ended up publishing a whole bunch of correspondence between them and connecting the narrative so that he could avoid this kind of uh, crazy character attack that came out of Rousseau. Um, by the by, Hume was pretty good on economics. Uh, he said, uh, uh, wealth is not money, but commodities. He said, you shouldn't have more money in circulation than the amount of goods and services in the market, which um, Berkeley, we just talked about, or Barclay, as some say, also said as well um, that a low rate of interest is probably the result of good trade, like booming trade, rather than there being too much money, and that you can't continue as a nation to export only for gold, right? It, it, to to uh, that that's not going to to work at all. You need mutual trade to stimulate local the local economy. That there's a distribution or a division of competencies and specialties among nations because some nations have different climates, of course, different skill sets, different raw materials and so on. And so you benefit from, you know, uh, England's better at producing coal and the Caribbean is better at producing cane sugar. And so you, you trade these, these two things. So yeah, it was pretty good at that kind of stuff as a, as a whole. And of course, just to jump back on the morality thing briefly, I mean, the fact that he says the cause of morality is the admiration of virtue for everyone by almost everyone, that's kind of a cause thing which you can't directly observe. So it seems to me that he break his own bundle conjecture, right, that you can't get the cause from mere observation. And, of course, there's lots of counter evidence towards this as well. So the last thing that I wanted to mention here, and I wanted to get this sort of deep background. So with regards to Hume, right? The, the thing that most people know about Hume is the is-ought dichotomy. The is-ought dichotomy. That you cannot get a morality from a fact. So the fact that strychnine is a deadly poison is a fact. But from that, it does not follow that you ought not put it in somebody's drink and kill them. The fact that somebody will fall to their death if pushed from a high cliff does not mean that you ought not. Now, again, this is the break from religion. And this is why, again, so, so why ought you not do it? Because God commands it and so on, right? That's the why you ought not do these things. Thou shalt not murder is more important than any physical fact, because the physical facts are all there to support the moral commandments of God and the moral journey towards heaven of mankind. 
So to take a sort of silly example, as I mentioned before, if you have a Tennessee Williams play, say The Glass Menagerie or Night of the Iguana or Streetcar Named Desire, if you have a Tennessee Williams play, ought you follow Tennessee Williams' script? Yes. Yes, otherwise it's not a Tennessee Williams play. So in the same way, they'd say, because it's a constructed reality, right? It's a constructed and commanded reality. And they'd say, well, what we call the material world is a commanded and constructed reality. And all the material objects, causes, processes, and properties of the universe are there to serve the moral excellence of mankind and the journey to union with God after death in heaven, right? That's what it's all for. That's what it's all about. So once you take away this causality, right? Once you take away this causality, what are you left with? What are you left with? Well, there's no ought. There's no ought in the universe. And that's what science has taught, taught us. There is no ought. Now, remember, this is before the theory of evolution and philosophy, really, and moral philosophy is divided into, for me, religion, nihilism, Darwinianism, right? So religion is the ought and the is are the same thing because the universe is a morality play constructed for the divine uh, potential for excellence in the human soul, in the pursuit of virtue, right? So that's religion. And then, after the science proved how powerful it was and how accurate it was and how true it was and how it challenged the metaphysics or cosmology of religion, then you get this nihilism. And Hume is in this nihilistic phase. He is absolutely in this nihilistic phase. There is no ought. There is no ought in the universe, which is why he has to ground his morality in feeling rather than facts. There's no ought. That's nihilism. And then you get, uh, there's no purpose to the universe, right? The purpose of the universe is reunion with God after death. Okay, that's the religious one. After science proved its incredible power, and people, like, people were alive because of science. Right? People were alive because of science. And people understood the true facts of the universe because of science. So, I mean, soap. <laughs> soap, for heaven's sakes, right? So, or, or, or boiling water or whatever, right? I mean, I know germ theory was 19th century and the soap in medicine was, uh, what, late, 18, late uh, 18th century, early 19th century. So, uh, at, at this point, but at least the cosmology was valid and true. They understood it, right? It explained the universe as, as far as what you could observe from Earth. So, we've got religion. There isn't the ought of the same thing. We've got the nihilism from 17th century to 19th century, which is there is no universal good, there is no absolute moral truth, there is no divine purpose to the world. There's nihilism, which culminates in, of course, the overthrowing of the aristocracy and the French Revolution, the American Revolution, even the British Revolution too. Uh, and and so on and 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 again we get this great modern world out of this so the nihilism is interesting right because along with nihilism comes economics and economics is what is most efficient what is most productive what generates the most wealth and that the because human life is temporal and material, that which serves the material is the good. Science has served the material. Maybe economics can as well, which is why you get the end of slavery, the Industrial Revolution. The end of slavery was more of a Quaker goal than a Christian goal, to be fair. But certainly the Industrial Revolution and foreign trade and free trade, the foundation of the modern economy, all comes out of this, this nihilism. With regards to the ontological moral purpose of the universe, you get to Darwinianism. Darwinianism, then, the purpose is power and dominance, which is where you get the 20th century from. So, well, we'll get into all of that. So the is-ought dichotomy is really powerful. There's no, there's no morality transcribed into the atoms of the universe. There's no moral purpose to the universe. And therefore, of course, he goes to, to some degree, hedonism and pleasure and happiness. Sure, if there's no moral purpose to the universe, then why would you sacrifice? Be happy. Be happy. 
you know, work for the goodness of others and do things which are admired and don't do things which are condemned and so on, right? It's just kind of mild hedonism that comes with nihilism. And that's like the high that nihilism gives you before the horrors that then <laughs> occur afterwards. So, yeah, he, he broke into the moral purpose of the universe and he said there is no morality in the nature of things. And that's heretical. And I did, of course, talk about that and if you want to know my answer to the is-ought dichotomy, then you can read either Essential Philosophy, you can read uh, Universally Preferable Behavior, a Rational Proof of Secular Ethics. You can get the, both of those at freedomain.com slash free. I won't do it here and now, because this is the history of philosophers, not my answer to them. Maybe that will be another thing. But a very interesting thinker, a very powerful thinker, a very erudite and instructive, and, and in many ways easygoing uh, after his um, mental breakdown in his 20s. So, yeah, I hope that this helps. Uh, let me know what you think of the series. You can, of course, help out with the series. I know this is going out to donors. At some point it won't be, but if you want to give me any additional scratch for the work that I put in here, I would really, really appreciate it. You can go to freedomain.com forward slash donate. Lots of love, my friends. Take care. I will see you next episode. <laughs>